We're excited that you're here for our study of the book of Romans. Romans is a letter in the New Testament, and it may be, and I believe that it is, probably the most beautiful and profound statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll talk a lot about what that is, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Paul writing to some new believers, but he doesn't start in the shallow end of the pool. We're just going to dive right into the deep end. They understood it, and we will too, and I think our faith will be built up. Let me say a prayer for us, and we'll just jump right in. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that we live in a country where we can gather and study your word, where we can go out and speak it freely, where we can go out and live it and show your compassion to others. Father, I pray for the leaders of our nation, that you would guide their hearts and steer their ways to do your will in this world. We pray for peace, and we pray, Father, that you would help us to be courageous in showing your love. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I know I do this every lesson, and this is also on your handout, but if you want to text questions during class, we try to answer as many as we can. I apologize, we can't answer all of them, but uh, my gracious assistant here kind of hones them down to see what is most of you thinking. I think if you will also text your credit card number, it will really help you in getting your question asked. Uh, seriously, text your questions. We would, we'd love to hear from you. We're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to be studying this. It's, we call it the book of Romans. It's actually a letter. If you sat down in my Bible, it's maybe 30 pages, like a, a short chapter in a book. If you just sit down and read it, it takes about 20 minutes maybe. So this is not a very long piece of work, but it's, it's very dense with ideas and concepts that I think will make our faith come alive. Well, here's how I'd like to start our study. I want to take you back in history, and I want to take you to, let me just write on this map, I'm showing you a map of the Persian Empire in 490 B.C., this is 490 BC, so we're 500 years before Jesus, we're 550 years before the letter of Romans is even written. And you're probably thinking, is there a point to this? Marginally, but it's really interesting, all right? So the Persian Empire, which the Persians figure heavily in your Old Testament, by the way, huge, you can see from this map, they conquered everything from India up into what's now Russia, northern Egypt, the entire Mesopotamian area. And so they were just really conquering. And their king Darius at this time had his eyes on Greece. And on this map, you can see Greece uh, over here, just a small country in the corner of the map. And he said, this should not be a problem to conquer Greece. And so he gathered a huge army and they went across the Aegean Sea and they landed at Marathon. Marathon's not a very big town. I had to put it on this map. It's uh, not too far from Athens, but they landed at Marathon. And so the Greeks, think uh, Athenians and Spartans, and they gathered together an army to meet them. And they met on the plain. I'm going to show you a picture today, the plain of Marathon. It's got a lot of little trees on it today, but you can just imagine this huge area where two great armies met each other. Now, here's the catch, though. The Persian army was far bigger than the Greek army. The Greeks had a really good general, but even so, this was going to be dicey. They really should not win this battle. 
Well, they knew that if they lost, they were going to have a lot of people sold into slavery and oppressed, and they were going to become subjects of the Persian Empire. So it was an important battle and not one they expected to win. But as in one of those great historic anomalies, the Greek army won this battle on the plain of Marathon. And at least for the time being, uh, history goes on and the Persians weren't finished, but for the time being, it was a, a almost miraculous victory and Greece would stay free. So the general grabs one of the soldiers there. His name is probably Pheidippides. Now, Pheidippides was the state track champion. And so he said, Pheidippides, I need you to run back to Athens and tell them the good news. And so Pheidippides takes off running and he ran from Marathon to Athens. And can you guess about how far that is? 26.2. <laughs> well, it wasn't 26.2, but it was really close. And so today, a marathon is 26.2 miles, and it comes from this. He ran 25 or 26 miles, basically, and so that's where we get our distance for the marathon. Well, he ran all the way from the battle into Athens, and he came staggering into Athens, and everybody realized, oh, there's a, there's a herald here, there's a messenger from the front, and he staggers up to the leaders, and he said, now in Greek, this is one word, but he said, we won, and then he died. Now, I have run a marathon, and I sympathize with Pheidippides because at the end, I thought, Lord, take me now. Just, I'm done, you know. And so literally, he said, we won, and he died. And so everybody is, you know, just cheering. I mean, that's got a bad way to die, right? It's like everybody, does anybody remember? Oh, yeah, Pheidippides, he died. Yeah, sorry about that. But hey, awesome, we won. And so they overcame it. The reason I tell you that story is A, because it's interesting, but B, because what he delivered to them was he delivered a message, and what he delivered was good news. It was a good message. That is the word gospel. And I want you to understand that we hear the word gospel or good news, which is what it literally means, good news. We use the term gospel, which comes down from uh, other places, it comes down into English, but it's good news. That word that we translate gospel is used all over Greek literature. It was just the word for really good news about something that happened. In this case, something awesome that happened in the plains of Marathon. And Pheidippides was an evangelist because you see the Greek word for good news is evangel, basically evangel, good news, and an evangelist is someone who brings good news. And so I, I want to tell you that I want to start that because we think of the word gospel, we think of the word evangelism, we think of the word evangelist as really churchy words. And I'd like us to not think as we go through Romans from a 21st century lens. In the time this is written, and I hope in your minds as well, when you see the word gospel, you think that just means a good news. It's good news about something great that happened. Does that make sense? I really want us to think about it in that way. So when we get to these words, I'm going to periodically remind you that words that now sound religious really weren't religious. They're just words in the culture that have been reshaped to mean something even bigger than what people typically meant. 
We'll come back to that word gospel in a minute, but first, let me just introduce you to the time of Paul and the time when the book of Romans or the letter, literally, it's a letter, and it was written to a specific group of people. This is a map of Paul, who's one of the uh, early disciples of Jesus. He's an apostle. He's one of the uh, 12 that were chosen, and I'll talk to you about that word in a minute too, because that's a churchy word, and it wasn't then. And so Paul is going on these really trips. He would go, we call them missionary journeys. But what he did was he just took off traveling. And everywhere he went, he would tell this good news about Jesus Christ or the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can see on this map that I'm showing you, this is his third missionary journey. This is from 52 to about 57 AD. So think about Jesus just let's use traditional dating, that the resurrection is, say, 33 AD. So this is 20 years later. So not long after the actual event of the resurrection of Christ. Here's Paul on his third journey. You can see on this map, it's really interesting because he went a lot of places. Well, the last place he went before he headed back is this town in Greece, still there today, called Corinth. Corinth was a major metropolitan area, and he spent a lot of time in Corinth. In fact, in your New Testament, in your Bible, there are two letters that we have that Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Corinth. We call it 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. They're the two letters that we have. And by the way, that's what most of the letters are, is letters written to churches, believers. But while he was there, he heard that some believers had made their way to Rome, capital of the empire, right? I mean, the biggest city, the most powerful city. So in 57 AD, when he's getting ready to leave Corinth, he writes a letter to Rome, to these Christians in Rome, new Christians. Some of them used to be Jews. Some of them used to be Gentiles, which was what Jews called anybody else. And they had accepted Jesus Christ. They were followers of Jesus, and he hadn't been there. And so he intended to go. He writes in that letter, he said, listen, I need to take some money that I've been collecting back to Jerusalem because there's a huge famine there and people are suffering and all the other churches I've been to donated money and I'm gonna take that back to Jerusalem. And when I finish that, he said, I'm gonna come to Rome and I want to spend some time with you guys. I want to talk to you about the gospel. I want to tell you this great story and make sure you're strong in your faith. And then I want you to help me on my way to Spain. So one more map. This is the Roman Empire. This is just zooming out, if you will. This is the Roman Empire. This is the one that's on your handout at that time. And so here's Paul in Greece at Corinth, and he's writing a letter to Rome. Now, he hasn't gone to Rome yet. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He said, then I want to come to you, and then if you would, I'd like you guys to help me move on to Spain. This map, it's Hispania. Because he said, I don't think anybody's ever preached the gospel in Spain, and so I'd like to go there. And so he writes this letter to the Romans thinking, I will come see you later. He does come see them, but he comes as a prisoner later. It didn't work out the way he planned. But we want to look at this letter. So what this letter is is he has some new Christians in Rome, 
And he knows he's going to get there, but in those days, that could be a year or two, just travel. And so he writes this long letter to explain to them what is the Christian faith really all about? What is the gospel all about? So he writes this letter, and that's what we are going to study. In our first lesson, we're going to do just a few verses at the beginning of the letter, and I want to cover some basic ideas and concepts. If you have questions, text them in, but we're going to lay a little bit of groundwork, and we're going to look at the thesis. The main point of the letter is right up front. Let's dive into a couple of uh, verses here. First, Paul, this is Romans chapter 1, first seven verses. I'm reading to you from the English Standard Version. Uh, New International Version is a great version. The New English Translation, good versions. The English Standard Version is a little bit more literal, and I want you to catch the exact words here. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, good news, of God, which he promised a long time ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, think Old Testament, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I'm writing this to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints or Christians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the pretty standard opening for Greek letters, although it's a little verbose. Usually you would say who it's from, Paul, and who it's to, to all the Christians in Rome. Paul is so exuberant, he has to use six verses to tell you who he is. I mean, he's just, boom, he just got to tell you about Jesus Christ right at the front. But I want to talk about a couple of words. First of all, I think because of modern sensibilities, this word servant, which I just underlined for you in the text, that is actually slave. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, a slave of Messiah Jesus. Now, in our Uh, contemporary culture, slave is a bad word, obviously, and it carries racial overtones to us. In those days, slaves, huge percentage of the population were slaves, had nothing to do with your race, had nothing to do with your ethnicity. It had everything to do with whether you got conquered or not. And then you became a slave and all your kids were going to become slaves. And so the point of saying slave is, he says, I'm not like the potentate of Jesus Christ. I'm not the high poobah, grand poobah. Do we still have poobahs, by the way? Any, I, I think we used to. Anyway, I'm the grand poobah you know, of Jesus Christ. No, he says, actually, I'm a simple slave of Jesus Christ. I do his bidding in everything. I think that's a really powerful idea. We say servant, but I, sometimes I think servant means like, oh, yeah, like you go to the restaurant and you have a server. Yeah, not like that. You know, that person is serving you at the moment, but they go home in the evening and do what they want. Paul says, no, this is more like a slave. Everything I do, I do for Christ. So you get this idea of this servant. He sets the tone right away. The second word is he said, I'm called to be an apostle. Now, we think of an apostle 
we think of the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples that Jesus commissioned and said, you'll be special emissaries for me. But in those days, the word apostle was like our word ambassador or like our word, it's a little more than a messenger, but basically like I have a message and I want you to go deliver it. So you're gonna be uh, an ambassador for me. You'll carry my authority with you and go give this message to this other nation. That was a really standard word. It was kind of a political word, really, because they would use it for ambassadors or people who were sent on a mission to go negotiate a treaty or something. That's all it means. And so I want you to see that we read the book of Romans. They're using regular everyday words, just like you and I will. When we go share our faith or tell our stories, we use regular everyday words to express what happened to us, what the gospel is about. That's what Paul is doing. He said, look, I'm just a slave to Jesus Christ. Everything I do is all about Jesus Christ. And he's made me an ambassador. And he's given me a task to go speak to all the nations. And so I want you to get a sense, even as we read this, to don't think of it as being theological or church words. These are very common ideas at that time. So let's talk about what is the gospel. He's talking about I was set apart for the good news of God. So think about this. What is the gospel? What is the good news? And I, I would argue that most Christians, unless we read a book like Romans, we don't really have a very robust, fully formed idea of the gospel. But here's the first thing. First of all, this gospel appears to be something to do with Jesus Christ. I mean, it has something to do with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And it has something to do with the fact that he is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But just like our story about Pheidippides and the battle at Marathon, he was bringing good news, or gospel, about something that happened. He's just telling you, relaying good news about something that happened. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is telling good news about an actual event, something that actually happened. Here's how Tim Keller says it. I like the way he puts it. He said, put most simply, the gospel or good news or good message is an announcement. I like that word. Announcement is very much what preachers are here to do. It's what Christians are here to do. You're here to announce to people something great that happened. He said, the gospel is simply an announcement, a declaration. It's not advice to be followed. It is news. It's good news about something that's been done. I want to camp out on this for just a couple of minutes because that is an idea that is not the way we normally think about the gospel. We typically think about the gospel in different ways. For example, we sometimes think about the gospel as a story. Sometimes think about the gospel as a way of living. We tend to think about the gospel as God loves me. We tend to think about the gospel as I'm supposed to go do good work in the world. Those things don't actually, they may flow from the gospel, but the gospel is actually telling you about something that happened. And I really want you to think about this for a minute because that is so very different than any other religion or ideology that you can imagine. It's different in the first sense because Christianity is rooted in a historical person and a historical event. Now, other religions may have historical people doing historical things, but the 
essence of Christianity, the gospel, the good news, is actually a historical event and its significance for us. If you think about Buddhism, Buddhism is really a group of precepts or ideas. It's a way of thinking about the world and the way of thinking about reality. And I don't mean anything uh, negative about that. I simply want to point out Buddhism is not about an event. I mean, was there a person named Gautama Buddha who lived in about 550 BC? Probably. I mean, let's just say, yeah, that's the case. But it's not about anything that he did. It's simply about a way of thinking about the world. He just happened to be a guy that communicated that. That's not what Christianity is about. Sometimes we think it is. Oh, Jesus came to tell us a better way to live. No, not really. Did he tell us a better way to live? Yes, but that's not the good news about Jesus. Buddhism is, here's a way to look at the world, to overcome suffering. Uh, Hinduism, think about Hinduism, you basically have a cosmology, an explanation of the way the world is and the various gods and the various ways that we will then relate to that god, the various rituals and things we will do and the things that we won't do. Think about Islam. Islam is very much, a, is, was there a historical personage named Muhammad who lived in about 570 AD? Yes, undoubtedly that is the case. What is Islam about? It is about relating to God by doing more good deeds than you do bad deeds. That's really different than Christianity. I know we sometimes think about Christianity that way, but that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. And so it's really distinct in that what happened on the cross and what happened in the resurrection, that is in a real event, like that battle on the plains of Marathon. It happened. And the good news is telling you this happened and it changed everything. Just like that battle at Marathon changed the future of every person in Greece from basically being a slave or being dead to continuing to live free and playing soccer with your kids on Saturday mornings. I mean, it made a huge difference. That's exactly what the gospel is. It's not specifically a way to look at the world, a way to live. Think about secular humanism, what most of the people in our, our nation believe and what they think. It's a religion. It's a way of living, and it's based on certain principles. Only Christianity, the essence of Christianity is that event that happened and what that meant to change everything. So let me stop there and answer some questions, and I don't want to get too preachy, but I really want you to think about that because we're going to have a hard time understanding the gospel until we understand it's an event, and it's an event that changed everything. Yes, question. Uh, we know Paul had not yet been to Rome when he wrote the letter, but obviously someone had. Do we know who took the gospel to Rome? Was it a specific apostle or a group of people? Yeah, do we know who took the message to Rome at first? Uh, was it a specific apostle? Was it specific people? We do not know who it was. The New Testament does not tell us who it was. It mentions some Christians in Rome 
are mentioned in the New Testament. At the end of this letter, Paul's, it's a letter. At the end of the letter, he's gonna say, hey, say hi to so-and-so, say hi to so-and-so. Hey, you, how'd your final exams turn out? You know, I mean, well, not exactly that, but you get the point. He's gonna say hi to some people that he knows, Christians that he knows in Rome, but neither the New Testament nor church historians really tell us who was the first person that we might know that went to Rome. And by this time, and this is kind of interesting, think about it, this is 57 AD, so 25 years after the resurrection, and already the gospel, the good news, is spreading in an uncontrolled fashion, meaning it's not just those original 12 apostles spreading this word anymore, it's sort of just exploding, which is very interesting. In 25 years, it's just exploding around the world. So that's a very good question. Well, let me take you to the second passage. So he begins with the idea of what is the gospel, and I really want you to hold on to that idea that Christianity is based on a historical event. The good news of the gospel is the reporting of that event and how it changes everything. There's another little nuance to this I want you to think about because I want to connect this at the very end of the lesson. If you think about it, we don't owe any allegiance, per se, to a particular ideology or a particular set of precepts. I mean, if you're a humanist, what do you believe in? You believe in certain principles. If you are uh, a, a Buddhist, what do you believe in? What do you relate to? You relate to certain ideas about the nature of reality. Christians see an historical event and realize that changed everything. And we have a relationship primarily with the person involved in that event. In other words, and again, I'm not being critical, I'm just trying to draw a contrast here. If you're a Muslim, you may revere Muhammad, but you don't have any particular relationship with Muhammad. Christians what Jesus did on the cross and being raised from the dead, every hope you have is on him. It's like, think about, maybe not a great analogy, but all those Greeks back home in Athens and Sparta waiting to hear how's the battle going to turn out? Is the next thing we see going to be a Persian army come to burn and, and destroy us? And as they sat there and they waited, you know, what is their hope in? Their hope is in that army. It's in those people. They're like, I hope you guys win. Christians' hope is not in a, a set of ideas. It's not in a set of, boy, I hope I can be a really good person. Hope I can behave really well. Our hope is all in the person of Jesus Christ and what he did. Okay? So I feel like I've hit that heavy enough and we'll move on, but we'll talk about this some more because that is not the way we typically comfortably think about the gospel, but it will change the way you look at the whole New Testament, and I think it will deepen our faith. Well, let's move on to uh, a little farther in the uh, chapter. So he goes on, he talks about the Roman church, he's heard a little bit about them, and he says this. This is the center of the letter. Everything else is going to be playing this out. He said, so I'm really eager to preach the gospel. In other words, announce the good news to you and tell you how that changed everything. He said, so when you think preach the gospel, I want you to think about it. I'm here to announce this good news and tell you how it changes everything. 
Preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in this good news, the righteousness of God is revealed completely by faith. So from faith to faith, let's just say completely by faith, just as it is written, this is from Habakkuk, Chapter 2 in the Old Testament, he says, the righteous will live by faith. So what's he saying here? We tend to focus in on one particular piece of this verse, and it's true. I just want to move on to some other things. We talk here about, I'm not ashamed of the good news. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's where we tend to camp out, is the idea that the gospel is available to everyone. People think of Christianity being exclusive. There's some truth in that, in that it requires obedience to God. And so if you don't obey God, then you can't really be a Christian. I mean, duh. It's kind of the same with Islam and Buddhism and everything else, right? It's sort of like the guy who said, you know, I'm a vegetarian, but I also like steak. It's like, no, you're not a vegetarian, right? So the point is, it's exclusive in the sense that there are certainly boundaries, but it's inclusive in the sense that anyone can believe. What I want to look at are a couple of the other words that we don't spend as much time on that are really key. The first is this. I want you to think about why would he be ashamed of the gospel? That word ashamed can mean uh, I'm not shy, uh, I'm not afraid, I'm not uh, hesitant. And so, but I like the translation ashamed. Why would he be ashamed to go to, or might he be ashamed? Why would he need to say this? To go to Rome and tell about this event. Think about this for a minute. First of all, Rome, we'll look at, through this series, we're gonna talk a lot about Rome, and I'll show you a lot of pictures, and I want you to get a sense of where these Christians are living. Think about the most powerful place in the world. It's the center of power. It drew everybody from every nation. It's like Washington, D.C., and all the other capitals all rolled into one. I mean, it is, without a doubt, the biggest, the most powerful place in the world. So it's cosmopolitan. I mean, it's highbrow. So here comes Paul, and what are Christians saying? They're saying, I need to tell you about something really significant that happened. There's this Jewish carpenter who was accused of rebelling against Rome, and they crucified him over in Palestine. That's like the equivalent of Godibo. No offense to anybody who's from Godibo. But you know, you go to Rome, it's like, there's this Jewish carpenter that was crucified on a cross in Palestine, and he was killed, and he was raised from the dead, and that changes everything. How well do you think that story goes in cosmopolitan Rome? One might be, might be ashamed to say, well, okay, I, that's, okay, that doesn't sound as cool as you would like in Rome, but he says, oh, I'm not ashamed at all. That event changed everything. But here's the part where it really gets dicey, is think you have to kind of understand how things worked in Rome. Rome saw itself, and the emperor saw himself as being, and at this time, by the way, in 50, when he wrote this letter, in 57, uh, Nero is the emperor of Rome. And so Nero sees himself as pretty godlike, and he sees Rome as having a destiny, 
Like we are an exceptional nation and we are a beacon for justice in the world. Oh, how are you gonna be just? We're gonna conquer everybody and they're gonna follow our rules. That's how we're gonna do justice. They even had a goddess named Justitia, that's where we get our word justice from, and it embodied the Roman spirit of civilizing the world. And so what their thought was is Rome is the center of justice in the world. And the emperor is the lord of the world. In fact, the emperors called themselves lord. Same word you're going to read in here. Everywhere you read lord in here, that title was always referred, uh, given to the emperor. You know, Nero, lord of the empire and the giver of justice. They thought they were noble people civilizing and conquering and making the world a better place, at least for the Romans. So in Rome, if you came into Rome, here's the part you should really be worried about and say that Jesus is Lord, that could get you killed. It could surely get you put into jail because what you were saying when you said that is, Caesar, Caesar's not the, the fountain of justice. And by the way, the word righteousness which I'm gonna talk about a lot more next lesson. But this word for the righteousness of God, righteousness and justice, they're two different English words, it's the same Greek word. In other words, those ideas. In other words, to be righteous is to be just. You've heard being righteous is being acquitted, like maybe you were acquitted in a jury saying you're not guilty, that's not a bad way to think about it. But in its sense, it really means just. Justice, the right thing has been done, right? It was actually righteous to condemn a guilty person. Well, that's righteous, that's justice. And so the righteousness of God is basically saying God is the one who brings justness and rightness to the world. And the Romans are going, no, Caesar brings justice to the world. So this message it sounds innocuous, doesn't it? Hey, I want to tell you about something that happened in Palestine, 33 AD, changed the whole world. Sounds innocuous, very subversive thing to say, very subversive. And so when he says, I'm not ashamed to preach this good news, he, he's going to get arrested really quickly for saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. Because at that point, you're saying, somebody other than Caesar is king. That is treasonous. And so when he says, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel, that's not a trivial idea. That's a very courageous thing to say. I want to make a quick connection to today. It's still a courageous thing to say. If you just pick up your newspaper, you, you know, get on your iPad and look at your news feed, what you're going to see is when Christians go into our culture and speak essentially that Jesus is Lord and deserves our obedience to the truth of the good news, that is not a popular message today. In fact, you may not get put in jail for it in America yet, but you will most certainly take a lot of heat for saying that. You will get put in jail in a lot of countries in the world for saying that. So I just want you to connect modern times to ancient times. This is not a once upon a time in Rome 2,000 years ago. These things still happen in the same way. So you get the idea of not being ashamed, the idea of righteousness as justice. 
And then the idea of power. This is really interesting. Because I don't know if you think about the gospel as powerful. In other words, what is the gospel? It's this message is telling you about this event that happened and how that changes everything and, and what it means for you and me. It means that we're not going to be slaves. We're going to be free. And it means that the world's going to be set right. In other words, righteousness or justice is going to be done between us and God and between us and each other. That's what this is about. So what's powerful about that? That doesn't sound right, but what Paul says is that news, that good news, is actually the power of God to save us. Here's how N.T. Wright says it. This is really interesting. Think about this for a minute. Paul had discovered in practice in city after city, and that's true, he's gone from city to city, that announcing the good news, you see that same idea? That's preaching the gospel. He's announcing this good news that there is one God, this is what he was basically announcing, there's one God who now claims the world is his own through the crucified and risen Jesus. That's one way of describing what happened in 33 AD. He said that announcing that good news is in itself power, and that power is all God's. I don't know if you think about it that way or not, but telling that story of what God did and how it has changed everything, and maybe just simply telling, I'll tell you how it's changed me. I used to be this, then I found out about this good news, and now I am that. He says that story alone is powerful, not because we tell it eloquently. I mean, sometimes we fall into the trap and we think, oh, well, if you're a preacher, you need to be really good, because if you're really good, people will accept Christ. No, you just go tell the message in a way people can understand because the power is all God's. Or some of us would say, well, I'd like to go tell the story about that, but, you know, I can't answer every objection or question. That's okay. You're not required to answer every day. It is okay. Somewhere in the Bible, it says, you can say, I don't know about that. Okay, maybe it's not in the Bible, but trust me, you can do that. You can do that. Because why? The power doesn't rely on me. Sometimes, you know what we think? We think, if I just go tell somebody, you know what? This event changed me, my life completely. It changed not just what I do. More important than that, it changed completely the direction that I'm going. I used to be headed there. Now I'm headed here. And they say, oh, well, really? Okay, well, what is the, why does the Bible have a hard time with this? And how does the Bible have a hard time with that? And why does the Bible teach this? And you go, I don't know that I can answer all those questions for you. And we feel like, oh, no, they're not going to become a Christian now because I didn't know the answers. The power is God's, not yours and mine. And this is a really powerful statement. And that's what Paul's saying. He says that preaching the gospel is the power of God for salvation, not eloquence, not knowing all the answers. It's this story and how it has changed everything and visibly changed you and me. That's the power of God's salvation. It's coming through that gospel. This is the essence. This verse about the gospel is revealing the righteousness of God. In other words, it's revealing how God is going to set things right in the world. And it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who will trust in this, who will say, that is good news, and you know what? It does change everything. And you know what? I'm going to turn around, and I'm going a different direction. That's the essence of what we preach. So let's talk about the so what. 
So in this one, I wanted to establish just some key ideas, some really foundational ideas. I want you to remember, these are not churchy words. They're just the words of the culture. Use other words if they're useful in our culture today, as long as they mean the same thing. We tell this story. These were not churchy words then. They're really not churchy words now. When you talk about justice, everybody understands justice. Everybody understands, I need to tell you about something that happened and it changed my life completely. Everybody understands that. So think about the gospel in that way. Think about the gospel as an event, not necessarily a way of living. Did it change the way I lived? Absolutely it did. But the good news was what happened. It had Jesus Christ not been raised from the dead, would I have changed the way I live? No, not at all. There was no reason for me to change the way I lived. That event changed my values. It changed the way I saw everything. And consequently, it changed the way I lived. So don't think about the gospel as, oh, you know what you're doing? You got to quit that. You got to quit that. You definitely have to quit that, right? You can't say that word anymore. You got to start acting this way. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that event will change your life. And then it plays itself out. And we'll talk about that in the book of Romans. So here's the thing. Knowing what we know now, just in these first 17 verses, how does this challenge me to think, feel, and act differently? Well, thinking, let me talk about that for just a minute. This has been a bit of a cerebral lesson in a sense. I just want to paint the historical picture and give you some images of what these words mean. But now you think about, or I hope you think about, the gospel differently that it really is about a historical event. And Jesus, the Son of God, who literally died on a cross and was raised from the dead to say, everything has changed. Now I think about that very differently. It kind of frees me from behavioralism, you know, kind of that whole legalism of, oh, Jesus isn't watching me with a checklist. Oh, sorry, you made five sins today. You're in deep trouble. That that's not really what this is about. Will I change the way I act? Of course. But that's not really what this is about. And so understanding the gospel in that way is going to make the New Testament make so much more sense to us. How's it going to make me feel differently? Now, here's the part. By the way, Romans is about the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are not going to see, I want you to check me on this, you will not find the word love until chapter 5. You will not find the word peace until chapter 8. You won't find anything about how you should now live until chapter 12. In other words, the gospel, it's about this event. But I want you to think about it. In the opening, what did he say? He said, I'll tell you about this good news of God concerning his son who was declared the son of God with power in his resurrection. And you think about that for a minute. Is here we are grubbing around in our lives, doing mean stuff to each other. I mean, we've been doing it for as long as humanity's been around. And here is the son of God who is willing to enter history, enter history, undergo the cross and the tomb so that it would change everything for us and everyone would have the opportunity to believe. I don't know about you, but if you think about it, my hope, your hope is in what he did. I don't have an allegiance. I don't have warm feelings to 
you know, for these commandments, these principles. I have really, really warm feelings for this guy, Jesus, who is fully human and fully God. In other words, when we say Christianity is about a relationship, that is absolutely true. It's all about our relationship to the person involved in this event, the Son of God with power who gave it all up for you and for me. That's a very intimate thing to do, and it invites us into a relationship. He doesn't just go back to heaven and say, hey, here's a bunch of rules, follow those, and I hope I'll see you in heaven. If not, too bad. That's not the way this works. It's all about, do you know who I am? Do you understand what I've done? And how is that gonna change your life? That is a relationship. That's a very personal thing. And I want you to feel that because we need to understand what God did, but once we do, we need to love him. What are the great commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That makes perfect sense. Nobody says love the Buddha with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Nobody says love Muhammad with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And again, I'm not bashing that. I'm just saying this is really different. It's like love the God who loved you. This is all about a relationship. And then finally, how am I going to act differently? Give you one more quote here from N.T. Wright. He says, Paul's aim in this letter is to explain to the Roman Christians, the Roman church, what God has been up to and where they might belong in the map of these purposes. Typical right kind of way of saying it, but what's he really saying? He said this letter is basically telling you what God's been up to, what he's been doing throughout history, when before you were born and what he's got planned for you after you die. Tell you what he's up to and where you fit in that scheme of things. That's what I think makes our actions a little bit different. And that is, if you, part of the good news of that event, by the way, is that, hey, God's been doing something here. There's a purpose. I obviously matter because the Son of God with power entered history and created this event that literally could save me. It's the power of God for salvation to all who will put their trust in Christ, to all who believe. Wow, that's saying something. You know what that says? It means I matter. I have a purpose. God's doing something here. He's got a plan. This is not just a random world, despite what it may seem, you know, when you're on the Hefner Parkway. I, I think randomness rules there. But if seriously, you think about it, you go, hey, there's a plan. Hey, I have a part in this plan. I fit. I don't know if, if you in this audience or in the sound of my voice feel this, but if you get out into our culture and just look at all the statistics, the alienation and the loneliness, very interesting studies being done that Americans, and I'll just stick with Americans for the moment, I believe it's true in all the Western countries, but certainly in America, is that Americans are getting more and more lonely. Now that's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because you have more and more TV stations. Think about it, how many TV stations did you have growing up? Three. Three. How many do you have now? Three million, there you go, that's exactly right. And yet, you've got a phone and you can be in instant contact with everybody around the world. You can send messages to anyone, and yet, Americans are feeling more isolated and alone. It's leading, and this is off the subject, but the, the stats are just, they just paint an obvious picture. That 
Alienation and loneliness leads to higher levels of depression, higher levels of suicide, higher levels of what you would call more desperate and uh, marginalized behaviors. And so that there's an essential loneliness. And I don't know that you feel that because we who are Christians, we who are in the community and the body of Christ, I'm not telling you that life's perfect, but you may go, well, that's not my experience. Good, because that's what the kingdom of God is about. But you know a lot of people that are very lonely. I mean, essentially lonely on the inside, a desire to belong. Why, there was a great article, by the way, in uh, Wall Street Journal about uh, the MS-13 gang, the idea of how in the world would anybody want to be a part of a gang like that? Think about what you know about radicalized Islam. Why does anybody want to be in a group that's going to go blow people up and kill them? I mean, it's a little unusual to us, but you know when you start diving into it, and then I thought the Wall Street Journal article did a really good job on this, is people want to belong. People want to feel like I have friends. I have a group to which I belong. And our culture is longing for that kind of, of belonging, that kind of feeling like I fit in, I have a place. Don't underestimate that. But that's one of the great implications of the gospel, and it changes the way you and I act. We go about our lives knowing that we have a purpose. We're part of a plan. We're part of something much bigger than we are, and yet at the same time we have an intimate relationship you know, with the very God who powers us in our lives. And we know that we have a group of fellow brothers and sisters. That's how the Bible talks about Christians as brothers and sisters. Why? Because it's really the most intimate family relationship that we know, right? That's why they talk about it that way. It's like, I got a lot of brothers. I got a lot of sisters. I got a big family. Man, that feels good. And I want you to feel that feeling. And I hope it leads us to be very passionate to share the good news about that event with everybody out there who doesn't have that feeling. Does that make sense? That's the good news about God, and that's some of the things that it changes. It changes our understanding that, you know what, that event changed everything. It changes the way we feel. You know what, Jesus Christ, I don't have an allegiance to a bunch of rules. I have an allegiance to Him. I have a relationship with Him and I know where I fit. I belong. Don't ever underestimate the power of the gospel, of the good news. It doesn't require you and me to be terribly persuasive or brilliant or knowledgeable. Just go be who you are in Christ and invite other people in. That's what Wright is saying, is that this there is power in announcing this good news. So that is actually... Your assignment is I want you to capture that feeling that you have of belonging, and I want you to go into a world where everybody's got a pretty face on, but there's a lot of hollow, empty hearts out there, and tell the good news about what happened and what it has done for you and me. Now, like most things, I have good news and I have bad news. So in this audience, I can't see everybody else, but how many of you, when somebody says, I have good news and I have bad news, how many of you say, I would like to have the bad news first? You little pessimist, you. How many say, good news first? Okay, glass half full. Well, I have good news and I have bad news, 
And I just told you the good news. Next week, I have some very bad news. But don't let that hang over your head. You just go out there and preach the gospel. Seriously, I'll see you next week. We'll dive into this a little more.